Hey everybody, welcome to Sweater Weather. I'm Aaron Giovanoni. I have an excellent interview for you today. I'm talking to Sam Gindin. He's the co-author of The Making of Global Capitalism from uh, 2012. It's a modern classic, and he's also the author or co-author of the of the 2020 book, uh, The Socialist Challenge Today. You know, a no less essential read. Both of these were co-written with his uh, longtime colleague and friend Leo Panitch. No, Sam is an international authority on political economy and international socialism. He's published on and speaks about these issues quite frequently in a, in a more global context. So I really wanted to hear what he had to say about these things in Canada, like you know Canada's place in global capitalism, the possibilities for economic nationalism in Canada, and you know what has been the left the left's uh, response in Canada to recent upwellings of populism and, you know, populist energies. Uh, and of course, we're going to have to talk about that old chestnut for socialists in Canada, the NDP. So I'm honored and delighted to speak to Sam today. Um, and it's especially important, I think, for to do this now, like early on in this channel's existence, because, you know, his work is really vital um, to having, I think, a grounded, but a broad view of our historical moment. Don't forget to like this video and to subscribe to the channel. You can see a little round logo hovering in the right hand, the bottom right hand corner of the screen. Just click on that and you're all good. It'd be very much appreciated. And of course, if you really like what I'm doing on Sweater Weather, consider supporting me on Patreon. Uh, the link is right here. I think it's glowing uh, in, a, in a bright font. Uh, but given limited functionalities to lowly uh, level, low-level YouTubers like myself, that link is not active. But you can find a link to Patreon in the show notes or in the banner of the channel. Okay, without further ado, here is Sam Gindin. For most of his professional life, Sam was researcher at uh, the Canadian Auto Workers Union. It's now Unifor, uh, the largest private sector union in Canada. And uh, so we're also going to be talking about unions in Canada, um, how they're doing, um, but especially something that Sam calls the formation of the working class. And we're also going to hear a lot about his inspiring efforts, efforts with a worker-led project in Oshawa called Green Jobs Oshawa. And I'm honored and delighted to speak to Sam today, um, especially now at the beginning of this channel's existence. His work really provides a uh, like a, a broad but but grounded view of our historical moment about what our you know what our political and economic possibilities are right now, which I feel like uh, any socialist in Canada should should know about. And so I think this interview today is going to provide some important ideological you know groundwork for the for sweater weather going forward. Don't forget to like this video and to subscribe to the channel. You can see a little round logo hovering in the right hand, the bottom right hand corner of the screen. Just click on that and you're all good. It'd be very much appreciated. And of course, if you really like what I'm doing on Sweater Weather, consider supporting me on Patreon. Uh, the link is right here. I think it's glowing uh, in, a, in a bright font. Uh, but given limited functionalities to lowly uh, level low level YouTubers like myself, that link is not active. But you can find a link to Patreon in the show notes or in the banner of the channel. Okay, 
Without further ado, here is Sam Gindin. So thank you, Sam Gindin, for being here. Great to be here. In the making of global capitalism, you and co-author Leo Panich write that, quote, states need to be placed at the center of the search for an explanation of the making of global capitalism. You argue that globalization is not, as some have described it, a process where multinational corporations do away with nation states in, the favor, uh, in favor of somehow ruling uncontested. Far from dismantling governments, capitalism on a global scale has required nation states developing new capacities to facilitate the needs of capital by enforcing property rights, contract law, free trade regimes. So global capitalism required the powerful American state to take up the responsibility of protecting and projecting global capitalism, especially since World War II. So my question is about Canada. What has been the Canadian state's role in facilitating global capitalism in the period that you write about in the book? How has Canada's uh, proximity to or special relationship with the United States shaped its economic fate? Okay, let me just go back a step to uh, this uh, apparent contradiction between nation states and uh, global production, because it doesn't just work in terms of uh, people saying uh, the nation state is irrelevant, but uh, a lot of people now are also saying, no, nationalism is what's happening and it's gonna remind globalization. So, so they put it both ways, but the way that that historically actually developed was that the nation state was internationalized. I think that's one of the key concepts that Leo and I emphasized, that the nation state itself took responsibility for facilitating global capitalism on its own territory and for, and for uh, uh, agreeing to international rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do uh, to consolidate this. So in, in the case of Canada, what's so interesting is that uh, in the 70s, people actually in Europe were talking about the Canadianization of Europe. And what they meant by that was that Canada seemed to be the prime example of a country that, a developed country, that had its own, uh, its own uh, state autonomy. Nobody was occupying it, nobody was forcing it to do anything. And yet it was getting integrated by opening its borders to American capital and wanting to get access to foreign capital. So the Canadian state was doing this on its own. I mean, uh, Leo wrote a piece in 1994 when he was talking about free trade, where he emphasized that uh, states aren't victims of globalization, they're authors of globalization. And that's critical that, uh, you know, the Canadian state wanted to guarantee access to the American market and it wanted American uh, investment to come here and feel comfortable so it was setting the conditions for this. Uh, you know, even today, you know, when you think about it, we're just going through a process right now where GM, Ford and Chrysler have all gotten major subsidies for investment in Canada. So in spite of the fact that free trade was a constitution for property rights uh, and limited the autonomy to do certain things in Canada, but I wanna be careful, it wasn't limiting state autonomy because the state was asking for this. It was limiting democratic autonomy. If we ever wanted to actually enforce rules on corporations that they had to meet certain requirements, 
Uh, they had to make commitments to the community. They couldn't just leave. That's what was being limited. So right now, but of course it doesn't limit other things. And right now we see three major American corporations getting these subsidies for coming here and doing things without a peep. The kind of nationalist arguments you used to you know, hear in the past are gone. And that's part of the strength of capitalism. So, um, you know, recently, as like in the last four years, especially since the election of uh, Donald Trump, you know, on a, an apparent platform of economic nationalism, border walls, tariffs, you know, NAFTA reno renegotiations. This caused a lot of people to argue that the U.S.-led global order was entering a period of decline. So I think the coronavirus epidemic that the American state, at least on its domestic territory, has managed very poorly, uh, seems to have anyway, and is doing economic, economic damage to a lot of people, that now adds weight to the sense that there is like the US-led systems in decline or is dysfunctional anyway, if not broken. So, but you've written in The Making of Global Capitalism that pro proclamations of US decline in the past have really missed the mark, especially during the crises of the 1970s, and also in the great financial crisis in 2008. These were actually resolved by accelerating and strengthening the US global order, if I have that right. So my question is, you know, are American economic nationalism and the coronavirus epidemic meaningful threats to the US-led uh, you know, global capitalism? Um, and if they are, is there like some other state waiting in the wings to take over? A lot of commentators talk about China as a potential to do that. So is that a credible scenario? Yeah, okay. Well, you, you're getting to the main questions that I think are being thrown out there. Uh, the question of the dysfunctionality of the American state uh, and of the American empire is crucial. So I, I don't wanna dismiss that, but I wanna, what I wanna start with is that the material base for the American state is still there. If you look at where high tech is, the Americans have lost all kinds of sectors but they've maintained their dominance in the key high-tech sectors. That is still there. They've maintained their dominance in the key business services that are so important for global capitalism, consultancy firms, construction firms, uh, the, the legal infrastructure for globalization, accountancy firms, uh, and especially finance, the financial sector. The American dollar is still absolutely uh, dominant and critical. And then within the state, um, in spite of these dysfunctionalities, the Federal Reserve Board continues to play a dominant role. It is still the world's central bank. It is still flooding markets and crises uh, to help central banks around the world. So that is still going on. You know, there's a bit of a parallel to the 70s when during the Watergate crisis, it looked like the US was dysfunctional and nothing was, uh, couldn't get out of this. It was in decline, other competitors were emerging. There was a crisis that lasted almost a decade, but American, but global capitalism adjusted. And that's always the question, can it adjust? And so right now the material base is there, but what is so important is this question of legitimacy because in the fifties and sixties as global capitalism emerged and there was a lot of restructuring, uh, you also had compensation for workers through that restructuring. There was growth, unions were growing, there were benefits. That's not happening anymore. So now there's a question of the legitimacy of globalization in all, in all kinds of countries. And you get a certain kind of nationalism because globalization still has to be defended 
and legitimated nationally. The United States can't say it's good for you. This requires each country to say it's good for you. It's good for us because we can develop under it and we'll win things, but people aren't winning things. And it's especially been a problem because there has been a burden to empire. The US has said that, well, we have to pay for wars. We have to do other things. Uh, we have to keep corporations strong to compete. So it's gonna cost you in terms of being competitive. So there is this question of legitimacy. And the fact that uh, no one, no political party and no states have solved that problem of legitimacy through this, neo, through this globalization has uh, created a crisis of legitimacy of states uh, and it's created a, a crisis of legitimacy of political parties because they're not addressing this. So you see crises in a lot of countries, but you also see it within the Republican Party and you see it within the Democratic Party. Um, and you know we can get back to that in a second, but in terms of your question about, well, if it were in decline, who would replace it? There is nobody to replace it. Uh, you know, you know, if you go back over time, there's always somebody that looks like they're the next one who's going to replace it. It's Japan, it's Germany, or maybe it's Europe. Uh, none of that happens. So then there's now the question of China, and there's no question that the fact that. Uh, uh, China is crucially important, unique in all kinds of ways. Uh, and we really don't want to predict what's going to be like in 30 years. But right now, what you can say about China is its path to development and its own legitimation, legitimation within China depends on growth, which depends on its entry into global capitalism. No country has ever been as integrated into global capitalism as China is in terms of markets, in terms of technology, in terms of getting investment. So China's main argument is, we want the United States to act like a sensible empire. It is dysfunctional as an empire. We want it to act sensibly. They don't wanna get rid of it. They don't wanna take the burden on themselves. They don't think that they can. What they do want, want is to be recognized as an important player within the American empire. They want a higher status within the empire, but they're not looking to get rid of it. They're looking for the Americans to keep playing the role, but not in an insane way as they've been playing it. Um, and uh, for them to play, uh, to do more than that, for example, with the, with the renminbi, to replace the dollar would mean that they would have to accept the dollar as a global currency that they can't just manipulate themselves. That would have to depend on markets and what the freedom of uh, investors to do what they want. And uh, that's something that they can't do. They can't do it because it would mean giving up control over their economy. Their financial controls are fundamental controlling the economy. And if they gave that up, they'd be giving up control over the economy and that would create a political problem for the Chinese Communist Party in terms of controlling um, you know, a society that isn't uh, legitimated democratically. Well, if there were uh, if there were a decline of the U.S.-led system, how would Canada fare in that situation? Is um, is some kind of economic nationalism for Canada uh, a plausible or a desirable path? Well, it's very hard to imagine uh, the American Empire declining when every major capitalist country actually wants to see it reproduced. When there's a crisis in the states, they see it as a crisis for themselves. So they will try to do everything they can to make it persist. We're not living in a world where we have national bourgeoisies who are trying to compete with the US and there's the potential for inter-imperial rivalry. 
So it's very hard to imagine this happening when China doesn't want it, Germany doesn't want it, Japan doesn't want it. Uh, but, uh, so the question then becomes, well, well, what social force might actually make it happen? So one question is whether the right might make it happen. If there is a nationalist right that is anti-cosmopolitanism, et cetera, uh, couldn't that be a threat to uh, global capitalism? And uh, yes, because uh, that can be quite irrational, who knows what will happen to it. But what we've seen from the right is that while it's ready to mobilize in very populist ways and ways against immigration and rant against elites and everything else, it hasn't been ready to, to uh, break with big capital. It hasn't been ready to say, oh no, no, we have to end globalization. And I think that's their contradiction. They don't have a set of policies, economic policies that go, go beyond uh, the right-wing populist arguments. The left is a possibility, of course. That's where, so, so I just wanna emphasize this. There is no Canadian bourgeoisie. In the 70s, the waffle in Canada used to talk about Canadian nationalism with kind of an alliance with a Canadian bourgeoisie. Well, if we started talking about breaking with global capitalism, it isn't Americans who we'd have to worry about. It's our own capitalists who would go nuts in terms of breaking with the US. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why we've had these free trade agreements. Yeah. So, so, uh, so the question is, well, what about the left? Could the left be at the forefront of this? And uh, yes, I, you know, if we're talking about transforming our society, we can't transform it without changing our relationship to the United States. You know, if you want to end oil exports to the United States, you have to deal with that. If you want to have more inward development so that you can develop. In other words, if you really want a different society in Canada, you'd have to start breaking, you know, in, in ways that you can manage. It might be incredibly difficult. It might take time. Uh, breaking financial markets, breaking the integration of production, or at least easing it in all kinds of ways to get space to do that. So the left... Uh, you know, would be the progressive force that could potentially do this with a different kind of nationalism. It wouldn't be a nationalism that says, you know, we're, break, break, you know, we're blaming other workers for the problems. Uh, it's, you know, it, it wouldn't be uh, a, a fascist nationalism, obviously, uh, but it would be a nationalism that would be expressed in democratic terms in trying to control our own future. It would be expressed in class terms that we actually want to challenge corporations it would be expressed in terms of transforming the state. Now that would be incredibly difficult. And you know, the point about socialism, it has to start in various places, uh, in various ways. So you fight for it in Canada, so, you, you know, so you, you're working towards it. But the notion of completing you know, a move to socialism without things happening in the States is virtually impossible. You know, we, could, we could make that battle, we can go as far as we can, but we would depend on things happening in other countries and especially the United States. And that's true for a lot of places. I do wanna make one other point here that I think is kind of neglected. Uh, for all of Trump's nationalism, what has to be noted is that he didn't break with global capitalism, that global capitalism is still functioning, that he's got all these tensions with China, but if you look at what they're negotiating, they're negotiating how to get high tech into China with less restrictions how to get the American investment dealers and American finance into China with no restrictions. Um, you know, how to get China to buy more of their products in agriculture. So, you know, he hasn't broken with it. The free trade agreement that he signed was, you know, had marginal changes with Canada and Mexico. 
He will rant against companies like General Motors when they close a plant, but he quickly fades away after he's got his, you know, you know, his media attention for a while. He doesn't impose rules on GM or what they can do and what they can't do. So in fact, uh, globalization has continued, free capital flows have continued, global investment has continued, and you know, globalization can slow down for all kinds of reasons. You know, it's grown so fast, wouldn't be surprised if it slowed down. But slowing down a bit doesn't change things dramatically. It still is globalization. And the COVID thing does show how dysfunctional the American state is in so many ways. I mean, you know, you know, the dominant country in the world not having a healthcare system is kind of an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the pandemic. Um, also shows how dysfunctional the U.S. Uh, is and will be in terms of dealing with the environment. If this is how dysfunctional we are, what's going to happen when we really have to cope with something the scale of the environment, which you can't solve with vaccines and social distancing and, and masks? So there's really big questions about, and contradictions in all of this. But... Uh, you can't just assume that from this dysfunctionality, you see the material decline of the American empire. Yes, they have to be, we have to obviously make a difference, a distinction between what, you know, working class people have felt as real decline in their wages and their standard of living and their health outcomes. Uh, Like that's very different than the state of capital overall, right? You Um, You could say that one of the weaknesses of capitalism today is it doesn't seem to be able any longer to both uh, restructure the economy and make globalization and do it in a way that also benefits working people and gives them a measure of security and, e- and equality. Now, part of that is because of the weakness of the labor movement. It hasn't forced those kinds of issues on the agenda, but that's one of the differences. I mean, Leo and I have argued that neoliberalism in a sense started after the second world war when the whole agenda was to create a global capitalism that was liberal. And it had to do that in stages because you had to get Europe to revive. And to get Europe to revive, you had to restructure capital. You had to get, let it have some kinds of protection, same with Japan, same with Korea. So, you know, it was, but that was the goal. The goal was to move towards a liberal national, international order. And then that ran into difficulties because once you give people some security, they have the confidence to fight back. And that was part of the crisis in the seventies. So then you go after people again. The question is, how long does that last? Because now people are getting frustrated without it, you know, emerging in a really coherent way. But they've been frustrated, uh, you know, with what this has actually meant in terms of their lives. So uh, this is a great place to start talking about um, your work with, um, with unions. So for most of your professional life, you were a researcher with the Canadian Auto Workers Union, that's now Unifor, right? And that is Canada's largest private sector union, is that right? Yes. So in your recent writings, uh, including the Socialist Challenge Today, which I recommend people read, you've argued that a prerequisite for positive political change isn't just working class organization as it might happen in unions, but the even more foundational question of working class formation. So could you explain what you mean by the formation of the working class? What would, the wor- what would working class formation mean in concrete terms and why is it so important? 
Okay, I, I think uh, unions are obviously vital to social change. I mean, if, if we don't have working class organizations, uh, you know, if we don't have a working class that is coherent and can fight, uh, it is hard to imagine, you know, you can imagine rebellions and protests, but it's hard to imagine it being sustained. So this question of unions is fundamental. And one of the things we have to come to grips with, which I don't think the left has generally come to grips with, is that unions are actually, uh, they're not class organizations. They're particularist organizations. They go into a workplace that represents workers who happen to be working there. Some of them might be conservative, some of them might be socialists, and most of them are gonna be you know, in between. Uh, they're different ages, uh, they have different cultures, uh, they even have different interests. Some are single, some are uh, married, and, and the union tries to make them at least into a group that can fight for their interests. And if it's a really democratic union, sometimes that isn't necessarily a good thing. They might fight for things that aren't in the national, you know, in the collective interest, but are in the interest of the workers there. Uh, they may not care about the environment, for example. Uh, they may try to exclude people from coming into the skilled trades on some basis just to defend themselves in a competitive environment. But the point is that they're particular interests. And that's what we really have to deal with. Because again, if you look at the post-war period, being particularist, just defending your own members, uh, wasn't bad. You could win. And not only could you win, you might actually inspire others to do the same. So it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. What unions want spread. That's not true anymore. When a particular union makes a breakthrough and wins something great, a lot of workers just look at that and say, well, nice for you. I'll never get that. So, you know, so what we have now is a situation where that particularism is a liability. It makes it easier to isolate you. Uh, it makes you seem like a privileged group because we have to remember that it isn't just that class inequalities have increased, inequalities within the working class have increased. So if we wanna make the working class into a social force, if that's the goal, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with how do we get uh, beyond particularist unions and uh, build out of the working class, the kind of coherent social force that has its own vision of a different society that is being, uh, you know, that is developing its capacity so it actually understands and analyzes what's going on if it's gonna change society, that can strategize, that has ways of actually debating without being at each other's throats, and that can organize. Uh, so these are the critical questions. Uh, now, concretely what that means is that you also have to change unions. And I think one of the things that's so difficult is that it's hard to, to imagine changing unions. Uh, you know, you can't just say, well, it's bureaucracy because it may be the members themselves who want that. You can't just change unions uh, if there's barriers within the union to change. You know, if the leadership is getting comfortable by saying, my members have lowered their expectations, didn't really expect very much, that makes my life easier. And if the members are demoralized and they feel like, shit, what can you do? It's globalization, it's neoliberalism, it's these asshole uh, you know, politicians. Uh, you know, and they don't have confidence and they're busy because now it's everybody in the family's working and they've got time stress. Uh, so the question is, do you need a socialist party, not just to make socialism, but to change unions? 
you know, people who have their feet in the unions, but also outside. So they have a larger perspective, but they're grounded. And then, you know, to get your question of, well, what would this mean concretely? And that's a critical question, you know, as opposed to kind of pontificating generally. So let me give some examples. Uh, unionization in Canada looks good. Two and a half times that in the United States. And it only looks good because as uh, Leo and uh, Donald Schwartz said in the book they wrote, it's easy to look good when you're looking at a labor movement that's on its knees. So we look good relative to the United States. Uh, but those numbers don't tell us a lot. It doesn't tell us that the unions are really winning. It doesn't tell us that the unions are dynamic. It doesn't tell us whether the unions are really a social force influencing society. So we shouldn't get too hung up uh, on the numbers. Uh, but in, the, in, in, in terms of the question of organizing, unions haven't been able to make major breakthroughs for a long time now. Walmart, Amazon, uh, uh, home care workers, uh, you know, and even workers in their sectors. So the question is why? Why has it been so hard to unionize? And one of the arguments that I'd make is that, for, first of all, it, it's very hard to organize because of this, you know, the, the state, state and its legislation, the administration of legislation and corporations becoming much more sophisticated in resisting it. But that just means that, well, unions are gonna have to change how they do it. So imagine if you're approaching this from a class perspective. If you're approaching it from a class perspective, you'd say, uh, well, why don't we go into a community and organize all the Tim Hortons workers? And why don't we cooperate in doing it? And the reason we have to do it is because it's part of building the working class and we need a strong working class. Otherwise, we're in real trouble. So, you know, that's the kind of class argument that you would make. And then you would educate your members about why this is necessary. So they would support you investing in low paid workers who don't pay a lot of dues, but they see that's important. Now, suppose there's no class perspective. And the argument is, let's organize Tim Hortons workers. Well, first thing you find out is that our staff has paid kind of a lot and the dues aren't very good. So if we do it, and it's very hard to service them because they're fragmented all over the place. Yeah, let's try it. But if it really gets hard, is there a commitment to do it? And maybe let's not ask the members because they'll say, how come you're not taking care of our stuff? You haven't been very good at taking care of our stuff. What are you worrying about McDonald's for or Tim Hortons? So you don't find that kind of crusade in doing it. You know, in, in the 30s, when the mine workers were thinking of organizing, a lot of their organizers were, you know, the CIA was being born, a lot of their organizers are communists. They put 100 people out in the field to organize steel because they thought that if steel doesn't get organized, they'll be isolated. But that doesn't exist today. So there's this question of, you know, if it's just a business kind of calculation, it's not going to be enough to happen, even if some people mean well. It has to be a crusade, and you can only have a crusade if you're thinking in class terms and we're building something that is about building the class so we can transform uh, society. Uh, let me give you just a couple of other examples. In the public sector, the public sector is increasingly isolated. You guys are pretty secure, your wages aren't bad. Uh, we're, having, we're seeing our plants closing, not having plants closing. Well, the public sector isn't gonna win by saying we're gonna be more militant. They're going to be walked over by the public. And the only way the public sector can win, and, and they get this now, I would say that the public sector gets this now, and the leadership gets it, is they have to position themselves as we represent the class. We represent the community. 
we're actually leaders in the fight for social services. And that's why you should support us. That when we want smaller classrooms, you know, is for you. Now, the trouble with that is that if it's just a slogan, if it's just billboards, if it's just press releases, nobody will believe you. They'll just think you're being opportunist. You're just trying to get us on your side. So you have to prove it. And you have to prove it by making it issues in bargaining, by being ready to strike over community demands, by, by leading you know, political battles, and also by letting uh, the community into a lot of your own structures. Like when the parents were organizing uh, to defend schools and class size, the union should have been funding them to hire organizers to do this. So I'm just saying that, you know, you can see the concrete difference between approaching it in a class way or uh, in another way. And even in the private sector where it's harder to imagine it in uh, job strategies, you know, what it would mean is it would say, look, there are limits to unions. We need militancy because you don't have militancy, you're not fighting, nobody gives a shit. So we need militancy, but we can't win this just by being militant. If GM says we're gonna close because you're militant, well, what are you gonna do? So it means that unions have to think in terms of, we need another strategy. We're gonna think beyond, I'll get to this when we talk about Green Jobs Oshawa, but you know, unions are gonna to have to say, well, we have to think beyond private corporations. Maybe we have to think about public ownership. Maybe we have to think about conversion. So unions themselves have to be more political, which means linking up with other workers. So that's always also part of uh, class formation. The final example I'd say is maybe less concrete, but I think it is in some ways, one of the most important things is uh, unions can't act like a political party. They have a particular role. They're elected to do certain things and you want them to do it better. And you want them to be open to the to notion of class and explaining it to members. But you also want them to be a space where there's some independence so you can get away from capitalist ideology. And that means you want unions to be a space for socialist education of some kind. It doesn't mean you have to win them over to socialism and to have a whole socialist program that not everybody agrees with. But it does mean you have to say, hey, look, guys, you should know something about your history. You should know that these things used to be raised by workers and there's a history of fighting for these things. And we're just putting them on the agenda to educate this, to educate this and to have discussions and you know, strategic discussions about does this make sense? Does this influence how we'll behave? And I think that's another concrete thing that unions uh, should be doing. Turn it back to you. So we will talk about Green Jobs Oshawa a little bit later. But besides that, are there some examples in Canada of unions doing what you just talked about, like mobilizing a kind of uh, class consciousness, doing this formation work, uh, or maybe just some uh, kind of maybe inspiring victories? Um, well, one of the interesting things is... Uh, we always think of ourselves as superior to the Americans, the American labor movement especially, that we're more left and we're more militant and we have higher rates of unionization. And one of the interesting things is mostly inspiring examples. Yeah, and I was just saying that uh, in part it's because the Americans have been more desperate, but you've seen you know, really impressive struggles you know, of teachers and nurses and some very uh, innovative organizing programs to get uh, people into unions. And it's also inspired uh, struggles in Canada. Teachers in BC a while back, uh, uh, teachers in Ontario. So there are examples in Ontario, you know, in Canada. And uh, 
you know, with the COVID, you've had other examples. Unions like uh, the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions has really been trying to mobilize and educate and, you know, fight, fight around having proper equipment and fight around really valuing uh, the workers on the front lines and the nurses as well. So, you know, you can find examples where people are struggling with trying to do this. And occasionally there's battles that emerge that are very heroic. Often they don't win. Uh, but I think the point about that, I, you know, I think the point that I would really emphasize is those, those things are actually sporadic. They kind of happen and they go away. They're not part of building something where we can say, hey, we're gradually going someplace. And part of what happens is, I don't think that the labor movement in Canada has admitted the, the depth of the crisis they're in. You know, it's part of democratic organizations trying to maintain spirit and show people how wonderful the union is. And, you know, it's very important. And unions, even when they're weak, uh, do very important things. But I don't think they said to themselves, uh, we're really in shit and we have to think of new ways of doing things. And new ways of doing things doesn't mean what has started to happen in a lot of places, which is that we're weak, so we can't depend on mobilizing the members. We have to make deals with the corporations or we have to make deals with the liberals. What it means is we have to learn that workers can only win when they depend on the class and build the class and the militancy is about going someplace and it's about challenging capital and it's about limiting capital, trying to impose limits on what they can do. And I don't think trade, you know, the trade union movement has really had those kinds of hard discussions. So what we do get is those sporadic victories occasionally, but those can also be limiting if we don't say, well, what do we really learn from it? Because most of our victories are always gonna be partial under capitalism. And if we don't say, what do we learn from it? People can learn the wrong lessons from a battle. We went out there, we did everything we could and we lost. So what's the point? So, you know, it's always a question of putting your, battle, your battles in perspective. What do you learn from it? If you lost, you have to ask, why did we lose? Maybe we didn't have enough public support. How do we do that? Maybe our strategy wasn't good. Uh, you know, maybe this is just a longer term battle where you, you lose things and then later on you find out that, hey, that battle that you lost, that actually affected things or it affected others. Uh, so yeah, the Canadian labor movement is formally in not bad shape in terms of it still has a level of unionization that compares well, especially to the United States, which matters very much, but especially around the world. But uh, in terms of its dynamism, in terms of where it's growing, there's, there's deep reasons for concern. And I think that, uh, you know, criticizing unions should be seen as uh, not going after one of the few progressive organizations in society, but being about really trying to make them better. And criticizing them is about trying to get them to seriously uh, think about what needs to be done and what needs to be done differently or what risks need to be taken and what new, you know, you know, what relationships you have to have uh, to the rest of the labor movement. I mean, the union that I come from, Unifor, is standing outside the House of Labor right now. And they've been in some very tough battles in, in, uh, in the Maritimes, uh, in the retail sector in the Maritimes, uh, in Saskatchewan. And, you know, we need to build that kind of unity. We need to be there pushing, if we think that, you know, we have better ideas, pushing the whole labor movement to go somewhere, because that's what we need. 
In, in the socialist challenge today, so you write about the resurgence of socialist or social democratic parties and movements in Greece, the UK, the US. So I was really wondering what you have to say about Canada and the situation here. So, you know, has this kind of left populist upswelling, how is it manifested in Canada and how responsive have the various parties been to it? Yeah, it's a really interesting question that uh, uh, Leo and I and, and working with Steve Marr have been writing about Syriza, you know, about these moments elsewhere and haven't really taken on. Uh, Leo's taken us on in some interviews, but it really haven't taken on in Canada. And uh, I'm going to ramble because I don't know the answer to your question. Uh, Please do. I, you know, I, 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 I think that, you know, the first point is there really is something big going on in terms of this crisis of political parties everywhere. So there's something big going on that isn't just about one country. And that crisis uh, has seen the emergence of both a left and a right. In some countries, you know, there's a right that's emerged. And in other countries, that's a left that's emerged. In a lot of countries, it's been both. I mean, Sanders and Trump. So you can't just explain everything in terms of the right when it's also happening with Sanders. There's something going on and it's and it's, there's an incoherence to it because it seems to be, I shouldn't say incoherence, but it's not determinate. It can go in all kinds of directions. And it has, you know, you've had Corbyn and you've had Brexit. So how do we deal with this? And I think that even though there's this big, large thing going on about the legitimacy of capitalism at this point uh, and uh, nationalism and whether nationalism is gonna move to the right or to the left, uh, uh, I think you actually have to look at the specificity of each country. And so I don't have a general thing, but you know, if you look at Greece, you can't understand what happened in Greece unless you realize, uh, unless you go back to the Greek resistance in the second world war, the centrality of the communists in that resistance and that the communists weren't smashed, you know, until after the war by the Western powers, but that legacy and that history of the communists and of a vision of an alternative and resistance uh, remained, uh, you know, and, and you know, periods of uh, fascism uh, in Greece. So, so Greece, you have to look back to that. Uh, you know, in Greece, you have a lot of small businesses, for example, uh, who who are people who are blacklisted for the left politics and went into business for that reason. So they're not necessarily a reactionary force. So, so in Greece, you have very particular uh, situation. In England, you have to remember that there was always a left in the British Labour Party. Corbyn was part of that left back in the 70s, you know, going back to Tony Benn and everything. So the left in the 70s, when there were these struggles with the left, and in a lot of countries got kicked out or went into the environmental movement, in England, the left actually stayed there and continued to make the fight. So that's part of why the Corbyn thing makes sense. In the United States, uh, there isn't a social democratic party that integrated the left in any way, but the nature of the democratic party is such that there are all these, you know, all these openings when you have a primary for anybody to run. Uh, the party doesn't control it that way. So you see a Sanders emerging and raising more funds than the establishment party can make. You know, there's amazing potential out there if you had a way to plug into it. So, you know, that has a lot to do with what's going on in the States. And there's other things in the States. You know, in the, in the US, there's always the question on the left of America's role in the world. 
And in the interest of the world, we have to be fighting its imperial role everywhere and the empire. So, you know, there's all kinds of specific things. In Canada, uh, you've got the NDP and the NDP kicked out the waffle and it kicked out all that energy from the left when it kicked that out. And the left hasn't fought really to get into the Labour Party, you know, into the uh, NDP. Some people have entered as individuals, but there's been no really coherent, a concerted attempt to go into the NDP. Uh, and partly because a lot of people on the left, uh, even though they would support the NDP electorally, don't think the NDP is a vehicle for change. And I think that's a question I, I wanna get back to anyways. But so in Canada, we don't have either a situation like the United States uh, where you know there was this kind of opening for a Sanders, nor do we have a Sanders, I have to say, the individual actually matters. We don't have the British Labour Party where Corbyn was inside the party. And we don't have Syriza's legacy. So I think those go all go into the explanation. And I think what happened was we had Harper in Canada and the reaction to Harper, the progressive reaction was Trudeau. Trudeau was kind of our moment in a sense, uh, you know, which speaks for itself. But, you know, this is a, you know, this is a profound question we have to ask, uh, you know, you know, especially when we're critical of the limits of the left in the States. Well, they had their Sanders moment. They're building right now. And where are we? And we have to ask this question. Um, ask you to clarify a little bit when you talked about the left not really seeing the NDP as an electoral vehicle for socialism. If you wanted to clarify what you meant by the left, because you were, you were talking about not individuals, but I think about movements yeah. probably. Well, you know, there's, there's good people in the NDP. There's thoughtful people, there's people who would consider them social, themselves socialists. But the NDP as a party is not about social transformation. Uh, it certainly hasn't been uh, since after the Second World War. It's been a party that has believed, you know, in terms of what was happening after the war, that capitalism was improving and you had to push it along and you had to take advantage of its growth to get good things and that you would get to something good, whatever it was, something much better, uh, whether you call it capitalism or not, just by continuously improving capitalism. And it was wrong. Uh, capitalism is a powerful system that reproduces itself and has actually made things worse for people. You know, you know, it's taken away a lot of the gains that we've made. And the NDP isn't interested in social transformation. So if you're not interested in social transformation, you don't have to look for an agency. You don't have to ask how do we make the working class into, a, into the kind of people who can actually transform society. You, you only ask, uh, how do we get the workers to knock on doors? How do we get some money from them? And how do we have some progressive sounding policies? Which are important, I don't, you know. But what you don't see as your task is, how should we organize ourselves if we really wanna make the working class into a social force? What kind of structures do we need that aren't there? Don't we need a newspaper? so we can discuss every day uh, critically and debate them? Don't we need a journal that can theoretically debate questions of socialism and Marxism? Well, these don't even come up. Because a YouTube channel, really... maybe. Yeah, but this isn't what, I mean, in the NDP, this isn't what the NDP is about. So, you know, you can support the NDP, but you shouldn't have any illusions that it is anything else or that you will change it. It has its structure and its ideology and its history. And it, uh, it means that uh, 
what we have to think about as socialists is how do, you know, we say that the working class is the key to everything, but we're pretty isolated from the working class. How do we embed ourselves into the working class? How do we get there so when they're hearing all these right-wing arguments, which can move them to the right, that we counter them so that they will move to the left? How do we create structures so they can say, hey, it's actually worth fighting because if I fight through this structure, I can see something happening over time. I'm learning things, I'm making new contact, and maybe I win the occasional battle. That's not happening. So those are the tasks for the left. And it also means that if you ever get elected or a progressive government gets elected, instead of just being disappointed, you can push them. So you know, I think for social, and there's a debate I wanna say about this. You know, I'm saying that uh, you know, socialists have to build something outside the NDP. Um, you know, the question of whether there would any be a tactical movement that you should go into the NDP, I would be very wary about. But Leo and I have both said that about the Labour Party. But we could also see both things, that people who went into the Labour Party to change it uh, aren't our enemies. And it made sense to engage with them. And it made sense to support them when they were defending Corbyn. But at the same time, I think it is important for us to make our argument that there's a limit to a Labour Party because of that's not what it's about. That's not what it's trying to build. So, you know, the strategy for people in the Labour Party, but this is more relevant right now because of the post-Corbyn moment is, and I think this is what, you know, groups like Momentum are doing is how do we organize ourselves to really build that base? Let's not get locked into going into parliament every day and sitting around. Let's go out and talk to people. Let's find out their problems. Let's listen and let's build and let's challenge them. When I say listen, I don't just mean, you know, if you listen to people, everything is wonderful. You have to challenge them. And, you know, that's what our role has to be. And to do that, you have to organize yourself. And the left hasn't been able to do that, I have to say. You know, all the attempts in, from the 70s to form new revolutionary groups didn't go anywhere. And the question, you know, we have to figure out how do we organize ourselves, which is basically talking about a party of a certain kind. So there's a space to discuss all these difficult questions. There's a place to recruit people. There's a place to educate them. There's a place psychologically to say, hey, it's happening. We're building something, even when you're not winning everything. And, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, in criticizing others, I don't want to uh, understate how difficult this is. It seems like these parties aren't really engaged in the project of working class formation that you've been talking about. And um, it is really stark when you compare it to, you know, historically what say that NDP's predecessor, the CCF was like, you know, in the, in its earlier, earlier years, in the forties, the kind of stuff, the books and the pamphlets that they were publishing, the study groups and lecture evenings that they would arrange. It was really engaged in working class formation. And uh, that's not something we see from the party anymore. I don't think. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, this was part of the integration of left ideas uh, in the making of global capitalism. You know, the big question at the time after the war was how do you integrate a militant working class when the war actually delegitimated a lot of things about capital uh, and legitimated a lot of things about planning. And, you know, there, were, there was lefts in the resistance. And as you said, there was uh, uh, left tendencies, uh, sometimes quite established ones in the NDP in terms of uh, magazines and newspapers and books and programs, educational. Um, a major question was, what do you do with 
how do you deal with this? And uh, the way that it ended up being dealt with is the promise that if we can just grow, if you just leave it to us to grow, you will share in it. And part of that was you've really not had much consumption during the war and the depression and you're hungering for it. Uh, we'll promise you consumerism. And so it was a move to make people into getting the benefits individually. Yeah, we'll have some backup for it and social programs when you're unemployed and stuff. But those are complementary to the main thrust. Individualism, consumerism, uh, don't challenge who owns production and private property and the means of production. Uh, don't worry too much about the redistribution if, if you're growing. And uh, that was relatively successful. And it meant that when they attacked it, we weren't in good shape to fight back and we lost. And what we're paying for is the deep cost of that defeat. You know, when we look back and say, wow, we used to have things and, you know, healthcare was improving and now we're lucky if we keep it where it is. Unemployment insurance used to be pretty universal. Now a fraction was getting it until COVID. Um, boy, we've lost so many things and workers have lost benefits. They made concessions, two-tier wages. But the biggest thing we've lost is a lowering of expectations of what's possible and a lowering of a sense that we can actually change things significantly. And that's kind of wiped the left off. And so what's exciting about this moment, and I think this is really important, is the left has gone from focusing on protests not too long ago, they weren't very involved in politics at all. Riots, demonstrations, protests against the G7, protests against uh, globalization, whatever. But then you started to see actual getting involved in politics. Podemos, Syriza, Sanders in the States. This is, you know, this is a really important move about getting into politics. Now we have to discuss, well, what kind of politics? And how do we get involved in that politics without getting trapped in it and not doing other kinds of politics as well. So these are the kind of questions that, you know, I think we're really confronting. And uh, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on the next topic here about uh, the Green New Deal. And uh, so this is a signature socialist or social democratic party that, you know, it's, a lot of people have been talking about, especially say AOC in the United States, there was sort of the green, what was it, the green industrial revolution in, in uh, Corbyn's program. It's sort of the same idea being like a big project that would require economic planning, public financing, would create a lot of jobs to produce carbon reduced energy sources, transportation systems, and all these other sort of green infrastructures that we need. So uh, I just, I know that you've been involved in a group. Do, um, actually, I'll get to that next. But first of all, I guess I'd just like to ask you, if the Green New Deal, like, uh, is a socialist program, like think conceiving of the Green New Deal as a socialist program, is that necessary to save the climate, to save the environment? Because there are, you know, kind of capitalist versions of this, just waiting in the wings, ready to take over this whole discourse, right? Uh, about being eco-conscious uh, versions of, uh, but like basically still for-profit enterprises. So could like, could some version of green capitalism do the same thing as the Green New Deal as we've been talking about it? Okay, so there's, there's two questions. One is, yeah, whether capitalism can fix the environment and then uh, how far you have to go in really trying to deal with the environment. So uh, capitalism can do things. You know, it's, it can find ways of 
uh, integrating the environmental crisis into accumulation, something you can make profit from. Uh, so, so that's gonna happen and capitalism can be quite dynamic in all kinds of ways. And uh, we'll see that, you see, you see it in its rhetoric, you see it in its uh, programs, uh, you see it in its uh, annual reports, and you see it concretely in a lot of you know, changes that they will make. But capitalism can't fix this. This is really the big one. You cannot solve the environment. You know, once you talk about the scale of what we're addressing, and it isn't just kind of, uh, well, let's stop polluting. This is saying we've already screwed up so much. We have to fix everything. And once you say we have to fix everything, we have to change how we live. We have to change our homes. We have to change our offices. We have to change everything about where we work. We have to change about how what we travel. You know, once you start, you know, social relations. Once you start saying that, what we value, you have to change. Uh, you know that we have to make public goods more important than. Uh, forever increasing consumption, you know, dealing with equality, of course. So once you put it that way, uh, you know, there's two big things you have to deal with. One is that uh, you cannot change everything in a piecemeal way that's waiting for corporations to come on side when it's profitable for them and when the financial risk isn't there. You know, we just saw in the auto industry, there was great banner headlines that Ford Oakville was going to make an electric car. Uh, finally, we're, we're getting into the environmental fixing stage. Well, when you think about it, oh yeah, we're waiting for Ford to do it. What about other companies? And is the electric car the whole answer to things? And then this isn't actually gonna happen to 2027, which is what happens when you wait this long. And we're gonna have to bribe them to do it by giving them major subsidies that takes away money to spend on other things. You know, what you begin to realize is that if you leave it to capital, because they're oriented to profits, obviously, it's, it's gonna be partial, it's gonna be incomplete, they're competing with each other, it's gonna be uncoordinated. They, they won't do it and they'll do it too slow, etc. So it needs planning and you can't do planning unless you control what you're planning. So unless you're ready to challenge private property, you can't talk about them doing it. So yeah, of course you have to push capital to do something right now while you can. And you don't wanna just inherit a world finally that is you know, a real ugly mess, but that's the first thing. Then when it comes to the Green New Deal, I, I think that the environmental movement and those pushing the Green New Deal deserve enormous credit for raising awareness. I think they've really done that. They're making people think about it. Uh, but what I worry about is that they too have to realize how big it is. And it can't just become a slogan and they have to recognize the extent to which workers themselves can be a barrier uh, if it just sounds like a slogan. So if you say to a worker, uh, well, we promise you a just transition. So don't worry about it. That means nothing to a worker. Who are you to promise me a just transition? We don't live in a society where what you say goes anyways. It's not planned. What does that mean? Uh, you know, so it doesn't mean much. And then the workers aren't engaged in any struggles. You know, they're fighting over their daily needs. So to make the, the Green New Deal concrete, you know, I think there were some very good things, for example, when Bernie Sanders didn't just say, well, he's out of big oil. He actually began to talk about taking, you know, introducing public ownership into the energy conversion industry. Well, then it starts getting serious. 
Um, so, so we really have to talk about, you know, how we're going to finance this. And that means addressing finance. And if we can't take over finance, which, you know, finance should obviously be a public utility to deal exactly with this kind of a question. Uh, what can we do? You know, maybe we should have green environmental banks that everybody calls for, but where do they get their money from? And are they going to go out in the market to compete and hope that people who care about the environment will invest in them? Because if they do that, they won't win. If this is based on competition, we're back to square one again. What you have to say is, we're going to set up a corporation that is going to invest in the environment and is going to get its funds, not in financial markets. We're going to put a levy on every financial institution in the country. And that money is going to go to these banks so they don't have to worry about where the money's coming from and they will do what is necessary as, a, as an intermediary step. So, you know, we have to think in those bigger ways about what we're doing. And then we have to think about how we concretize this for workers so they see something believable and they're also engaged in a way, which does get me to the Green Jobs Oshawa, which, you know, which you said you wanted to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so, please so go let ahead. Me give some, so let me try to uh, frame how it emerged and what it's been doing and kind of issues that we've come up against and where we're going. And I'll try to not take too long on it. You know, it emerged out of a really concrete situation. Uh, workers made concessions at General Motors to get some investment. And then two years into the agreement, uh, GM closed, closed the facility. In so 2019, closed, right? Yes, and they closed, yeah, they announced it in 2018, closed it in 2019. And the question is, well, what do you do? And some workers and some community activists got together. And I think they came up with some very important principles. The first principle was, we can't keep saying that these corporations are the solution to our problems. They're actually the problem. So we have to think beyond private corporations and beyond GM. The second thing they said is, well, maybe we can't even just think in terms of the industry. Maybe cars aren't gonna provide a lot of jobs in the future. Maybe that's not the issue. Uh, even if we want to you know, continue having in input and jobs in the cars that are being made, but maybe that's not the future. Maybe we should say that uh, this has to be taken over by the government acting in the social interest and start producing things that are socially useful. Maybe that's what we should start talking about. And, uh, and what that begins to introduce, and, you know, and so what's socially useful? Uh, in practical terms, what happened was when COVID hit, we said making N95 respiratory masks because we import them all. And, and there's these uh, middlemen who are bringing them all in from around the world and none of them work. Why don't we make them ourselves? Why don't we take all this technology that we have and skills and make them? And why don't we use our emergency powers under COVID to force companies to make them? So we actually formed links with hospital unions, nurses and uh, hospital workers to push masks. The longer term goal was, uh, why don't we convert this assembly plant to environmentally friendly products? And an obviously obvious one was electric vehicles. Now, what we didn't want to do is say, well, we want to make electric cars for consumers and compete with China and Mexico and everybody else to make those cars. We're back again to having to compete and undermine our standards. We said, we want to make fleets of vehicles for social use that the government buys for procurement. And we were following the lead in this really of the postal workers who had suggested uh, electrifying the whole, you know, all the postal vans. We said, well, why don't we just electrify them and make them? Why don't we electrify all the utility vehicles? 
And that way we're not in the competitive system in the market system, we're starting to get planning on the agenda. Uh, you know, and we did that with ambulances, uh, minibuses that we could use for more flexibility, uh, school buses, you know, we, we started talking about all of that. And we did a feasibility study. We hired somebody to show there was a business case. And it was actually a very impressive case. I was surprised that we got almost no criticism. It was really credible. Um, you know, and it was a financial study, except it had different principles. Its principles was, uh, what can we make uh, that would be uh, in a productive way, that would be socially efficient, but not necessarily competitive, and that would serve social needs. So those are our criteria. And, and that the workers themselves would all have decent standards. And we showed that you could do all of that and make it work. So, you know, so this wasn't a revolution. What we were trying to do was something in one space that might be an example of getting a question on the agenda and might inspire other people elsewhere uh, to think about doing it in their community. Now, I have to say, one of the things we ran into was uh, there was no support from the union. The unions considered this pie in the sky and they kept looking for GM to do this. Uh, you know, we felt like, well, even if you want, even if your goal was to get GM to come back, why not put GM on the spot by pushing this? Why not put the government on the spot by saying there are things that can be done? Uh, and you're going to be paying them anyways when you subsidize them to, to bribe them. You've been doing that anyways. But the union wouldn't do this. And that made it very difficult for us because we were a small group uh, without resources. And when we went to workers and we said, we've got this idea, they said, great idea, but who are you? What can you really pull off? And these are workers who'd been demoralized. You know, a lot of their, you know, they had seen Oshawa disappear as an auto capital. It used to be the largest complex in North America. They gradually over time saw plant by plant disappear. So they weren't ready to think about bigger things. And they were getting their heads into, we're gonna be laid off, what am I gonna do? And I don't even wanna think about big things because then maybe I'll be disappointed again. So we really had trouble getting a lot of workers on side. Gradually, we've gotten you know, a few workers on site, although I don't want to exaggerate it. Uh, now that GM is going to make elect, uh, uh, pickup trucks there, there is going to be workers there in about 12 months. It does raise the question, why don't we make masks meanwhile, because it's such a large facility. But it also raises the question of, they're just taking things that they couldn't make in the United States, uh, which are these big pickup trucks that they make a fortune on. And uh, they want to make them here so they can make a fortune before the environmental standards limit you making them. So they talk this big environmental talk about we've got a major plan, but meanwhile, they wanna make as much money as they can. So, you know, so we'll have a chance to use the strength in the community now that workers have other jobs. We'll have a chance to talk to all the parts workers that have been laid off because there's more of them than our assembly workers and they have skills and they've been really treated badly. GM workers got a lot of severance pay and stuff. Um, so, you know, so the point is we can keep getting workers to start thinking about the future and where are things going and why you're going to have to organize and why you can't let this keep happening to you. And at the same time, we can try to raise this nationally. So, you know, we've been thinking about asking every, labor, you know, not every, but getting a, a solid group of labor councils to form conversion committees where you would have workers who are thinking about how to convert things in your community because every community has things closing or that look like soon they're gonna close. And you could be kind of a fulcrum, a catalyst 
for other plants in the community for doing this and to give the labor council something concrete to do. So the point about this is you're, try, you're doing two things. You're trying to develop the notion that yes, there is an alternative that makes sense and that's credible and there's ways for fighting for it. It isn't just slogans. And the second thing is you're getting workers to fight for something on the ground so they're engaged. And what you see when workers start getting engaged in this, they're suddenly becoming experts on the environment. They're study actually looking into these numbers and saying what's going to happen. And you know that things are going to change and where are we going to be? So that's kind of what we've tried to do. And you know, I think we've been successful in terms of awareness. Uh, we're you know having strategy meetings now about uh, uh, you know how we really organize in Oshawa, but also uh, extended on the national agenda. There was a film made on Company Town called Company Town on the closure where the intent wasn't really to show Green Jobs Oshawa, but we ended up in the film, I think in a very positive way. Uh, you know, so I'm optimistic about this, but you know, this is a challenge. You need a lot more you know, resources to do this. You need workers everywhere starting to say, well, let's do something. And that's what, you know, that's what has to happen. Thank you, Sam. Okay.